0: Here we are now with episode number eight of our series, You Are the Chosen One. Harry's in his fourth year at wizard school, and he's met a bunch of new people. We've got this new teacher, Mad-Eye Moody, and we talked last episode about how we could (laughs) how we can create our own mad eyes (laughs) it's very fun much fun have, have there, much fun to be had there and there's a bunch of other characters as well and his world is opening up and he's been to the world cup, Quidditch world cup and we've also seen more of the dark side the what we could call the evil side of this world, of this magical world that Harry is in. And where to begin with this next little segment, I'm wondering. This is a big one. This this comes across in away as a small thing, but it really turns out in the end to be a very big thing. And when I consider it, it's really, this book, the fourth novel, it's the, the start of the crescendo. It's the start of the whole series crescendo. Really, things start to ramp up big time in this one, and threads, new threads begin here which are of vital importance in the end. And they come across, they come up in very unsuspecting ways. And so I'd like to delve into one in particular, which is very important, and one that we can put into a deeper matrix. And this is a analysis that I don't think has been ever done on Harry Potter. And... I'm guessing, well, we can leave speculations about the author aside for now. Whether the author is aware of these things or not is really irrelevant to what we're talking about. So what it is, is it's this thing with the house elves. Now we remember in the first book, no, it wasn't the first book, it was the second book or the third book, I think, yeah, it was the second book. It was the chamber of the the Chamber of Secrets. In that book, Dobby the House Elf, who caused so much mischief and so much pain for Harry, in the end got himself freed. Harry set him free by this little trickery thing that he did with the book and the sock, and his master freed him sort of by mistake. So Dobby is now a free elf, and he's sort of a, sort of a friend of Harry's. He's still a bit annoying. And Harry's friends, Ron and Hermione, they're also aware of this house elf. And there are other elves around. We've met a couple of them. And it turns out that actually the, the plot, the, you could even say that the entire outcome of good over evil hinges ...on this relationship that wizards have with elves. There are moments where the the elves save the day. And there are moments where critical bits of information come from the elves. There are moments when critical props come to the wizarding world via the elves. So the elves are deeply ingrained in this plot. They have a very vital role... And yet they don't come up very often. If you're actually reading it along, there's only so much you can read about the elves. And as we do a bit of an analysis on it, I think it will become clear why and what the message of the author is. So Hermione, well, she sort of takes a liking to ourselves. And she finds out that actually Hogwarts has hundreds of house elves that are working for them. They work in the kitchen mainly, but they also do the tidying and the cleaning and these sorts of things. And Hermione is outraged at this. And she goes on a hunger strike. And then one morning, Ron sits down at breakfast with her and and says, Oh, I noticed you're, you're eating again. What about your hunger strike? she says, oh, there are better ways to, to make amends of the injustice and the unfair treatment of the elves. And he sort of like says, no, you just got hungry again. <laughs> and between them, between Hermione and her friends, starts this rift, this difference in value spheres, which is very important to understand. And Hermione starts up this society, which is the, well, it's called, she calls it SPEW, S-P-E-W, which is Society for the Promotion of Elf Welfare. And this is like a human rights, like a minority rights, justice, listen to the Minority group, listen to those who are oppressed, free those who are oppressed, equal rights. And this is, well, this is the green meme. This is a classic case of the green meme. And we're going to go into the green meme and see how it fits in because it's very important to understand this. You must know what the green meme is. Another name for the green meme is the pluralistic meme or the postmodern wave of development. So we're going to get psychological with this. We're going to get into the nitty gritty. But if we look at this scene and we see what the initial response is, we see, well, Hermione's just found out this new piece of information, which is that the elves are working for the people at the school for free. And she's got this friend Dobby, which is a free elf, and he seems, well, very happy about being free. So she's thinking, well, now the elves must be repressed, so we're going to do some activism. We're going to make a petition. We're going to make a cause. We're going to ask for donations. And she starts up a little society called Spew. And look at what the response is. Harry and Ron... Her friends are sort of just thinking, oh my goodness, are you really doing this? This is a terrible idea. And she's got some badges. And she's saying, no, you've got to wear the badges. The badges say spew on them. Oh, that is just the worst idea I have ever heard. This is a terrible idea. And Harry and Ron are thinking, yeah, sure, we're your friends, but... We don't really want to do this. I mean, we've got lots of schoolwork. We've got lots of stuff coming up. I don't want to be, I really don't want to be seen wearing this badge. And it's not a matter of values for them. If we ask Ron what he thinks about the oppression of the elves, he probably wouldn't have an opinion. I mean, he's been brought up in a wizarding world. He probably thinks, oh, that's where they should be. That's how they should be. So, remember that the first time Hermione hears about this and the first time she becomes an activist, it's a terrible failure. And the first time she tries to get people on board, it fails miserably. And it is just a terrible idea. So, let's get into it. Here we go. This is... This is the the answer to the question, what is the green meme? What is pluralism? And this is a stage of psychological and consciousness development. And it's one stage within a map of approximately eight stages. And the term green meme, the color green, comes from... Spiral Dynamics. Spiral Dynamics is a model of psychological development. It's a map of psychological and human consciousness development. It was pioneered by Claire Graves. And he did a lot of the initial research, which involved interviewing thousands and thousands and thousands of people with multiple different kinds of questions, from multiple backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds. And he did a lot of the initial data collection. And then there is this book. There is a famous book by Beck and Cohen, which is called Spiral Dynamics. And that book is really an extension on the work of Claire Graves, And they were able to put the data and the information that Claire Graves had come up with into something that was accessible and easy to understand. And that was ascribing colors to the stages of psychological development. So if you want to understand green, the green stage, well, you've got to understand the stage that was before it, which is orange. And if you want to understand orange, you've got to understand the stage that was before it, which is blue. And if you want to understand blue, well, you've got to understand the stage that was before that, which was red. And then we go back to purple and beige as well. And let me just l- l- let you know of some resources that you can get into to really, if you want to... It, spiral Dynamics, it's a deep map. It's for both individual and collective, and it covers a huge range of the human consciousness development. It's massive. It's one of the most comprehensive maps. It's also cross-cultural, so it's been tested in multiple cultures, and there have been actually later developments on what Beck and Cohen have done. So that this book, Spiral Dynamics, it's sort of just in the midway. I mean, Ken Wilber has done great work, and a lot of what I talk about here today comes from the ideas of Ken Wilber. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a meaty thing to place into this one tiny scene, which is Hermione venturing for the rights of the House Elves. But it can help us also much more broadly to understand the different characters. Now, there's another thing. I feel like there's so much to explain. I, I already feel like there's there's things popping up all over the place. Which one to talk about next? It's <laughs> it's really exciting. So let's just stick, let me just while I've got two things in mind, don't mistake the colors of the houses in Harry Potter. ...with the colors in Spiral Dynamics. They're totally separate. So, for example, the Malfroys and the Slytherin sort of style of... ...especially in the films... ...they are green. So the Slytherin and and Snape, they've sort of got this greeny look to them. They use the green lens when you're around them. So that is different to the green meme... Whereas, in fact, the Malfroys are more like orange. They're more rationalist. They're more success-orientated. Well, actually, you could also say that they're very blue-orientated because they're about purity and hierarchy and about submitting to higher authority. And if these sorts of explanations don't make sense at this stage, don't worry because we're just slowly... Think of it this way. We're walking into a very vast, complex picture and it's going to take time to really build it up. And then the other thing I'll say quickly is that there's two ways to think about spiral dynamics. You can think of it as you can think of it as stages. So we start at red or we start at beige and then we go to purple and then we go to red and then we move on to blue and then orange and then green. And that's like the school years. You start at grade one and you go through to school year 12 or whatever it is in your country. And that's important. That's important to have that in mind. It is in many ways like that. We start at one and we move through them and it's one after the other. And in that way, it is stages. But the other way, which is important to understand, the other way of thinking about this, is that all stages are ever-present. Which means wherever you're at, you can access any stage. And another, let's say a third important principle, which sort of ties these two ideas together of the either the stages one after the sequential stages or ever-present stages or ever-present modes of being, The thing that ties it through, to those two together, is that this term Ken Wilber uses, which is a center of gravity. And I think actually this this term is in the original book of Spiral Dynamics as well. So it's a center of gravity. So some people have green more in them than orange. Some people have more blue in them, but they still have some orange and some red. And it's like a mix. So... Very rarely is someone only green. Very rarely is someone only orange. Because they do have all the other bits into them, all the other stages, and they come up in different ways. So think about that and keep it in mind as we go through. Now some resources for you. SpiralDynamicsIntegral.nl This is a website that you can go to. And if you just go straight there, you can immediately see what it means to have these different colors. Spiral Dynamics Integral.nl. It's a website from the Netherlands. And this website, I'm just looking at it now, it's got the front page with colors. So you see a picture, which the color is, for me right now, it's yellow. And then there's a quote And there's pictures of people in this color. You can see, actually, there's Ken Wilber. And there's Einstein. And there's Michelangelo. And then in a moment, that color will change. And it will be a different picture with a different quote. And these quotes fit into the stages of developmental psychology. Which is, which is Spiral Dynamics. That's a good place to start. That's a great website. Now, there's another one, and this is one of my favorites, where there's a, a, a video by Leo Gura, and he's a public speaker, and he runs the website actualized.org, and he has a wonderful series on Spiral Dynamics. And I highly recommend that series because he spends a full, like, two hours, three hours on each stage. And he also talks about hundreds of examples of where it comes up in culture, in individuals, in the sort of words they use, in what it's like to be at each stage. And basically, you can go and figure out Spiral Dynamics just by listening through that series. And I highly recommend it. What I'll do is I'll link to the, he's got a video called The Grand Model of Psychological Evolution, Claire Graves. So I might link to that in the description of this. Well, actually, we're in the middle of a series, so I won't do that. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Either way, you'll be able to find it quite easily because actualize.org, well, he's not available in every country because of censorship, but... Chances are, if you're listening to me, you you can easily listen to actualize.org. So, for further research, look at Leo Gura and also this website, SpiralDynamicsIntegral.nl. And, of course, I also recommend Ken Wilber. So, the green meme is basically what Hermione is doing in a nutshell. The green meme is let's sit around and listen to the oppressed. Let's give a voice to the oppressed. Let's fight for the rights of the oppressed. Let's bring equality to those who have inequality. Let's give a fair go to the underdog. And let's Sit around and talk about our feelings. And the green meme, well, it's a feeling-based. It's emotional. And it's multi-perspectival. It's how do we understand other people? I want to understand you. I want to know about another culture. And actually, the green meme is one of the highest stages. It's no accident that Hermione is... One of the smartest people, and it's her that gets this intuition. Because you do have to have a certain amount of intelligence. Now, before green, we have orange. And this is a lower stage. And basically, our world culture now is in the middle of orange. And orange is more about the individual. It's rationalist. It's about success. About making money for yourself, entrepreneurship, meritocracy. So, for the orange meme, they're saying people are in their place because they deserve to be there. People are in their place because, well, they didn't work to where they need to get. They haven't done the work like me. I've done all the work. I've used my intelligence, I've used my resources. I've made my business. I made my money for me. It's very egocentric. It's individual-based. Whereas the green meme, well, that's community-based. And the orange meme, well, it's very scientific as well. It's sort of cold science. Cold, hard science. What produces results? Where is the math? Where is the scientific study? Where is the proof these sorts of terms. And a classic example of these two memes clashing is well well there's two people and they're sitting in a room and one's orange and one's green and the conversation comes up conversation topic comes up which says so so what do you think about you know elf rights what do you think about this thing of how elves are treated at this magic school and what's going to happen is The green meme is going to become very passionate. They're going to become very emotional and they're going to say, Oh, it's very sad. It's terrible what they do. Oh, the bleeding heart hippie. Oh, we need to fight for their rights. How could anyone do this? My feeling is real. And how can you possibly argue with my feeling? And the orange meme is going to say, Well, have you done a study? Have you done a study into the quality of life? What are the statistics? Where's your proof? How can you be sure of the quality of their existence? You're just going off your own perspective, your own personal experience, which doesn't count for anything. We need peer-reviewed, double-blind, widespread test groups. And they need to be refined. They need to be systematized. And that's going to be a big argument. That's going to be a a lot of sparks in that conversation between the orange and the green meme. Because they're two totally different ways of seeing the world. They're two totally different ways of understanding reality. Now, below orange, we have blue. And blue is traditional values, conservative values. Mr. Mr. D- Mr. Dudley would be blue. You follow the rules. Do as you're told. If you fit in, well, then you can get promoted. And there are people above you. There are people below you. And you can work your way up if you follow the rules and you follow the system. And we all hail to the master, to the boss. It's a hierarchy-based stage of consciousness. And this comes up in religion, it comes up in the church, it comes up in law, the society's laws. It comes up in all sorts of institutions. And below blue, well, we have the red meme. And the red meme is passion. Really emotional. And it's not emotional like green in the sense that, oh, I'm feeling for other people. It's emotional in the sense of me, myself, me, me, me. It's a really egotistic, self-centered. So you can see the pattern there. Green is community-centered, collective-centered. Orange is self-centered. Blue is hierarchy-centered, which is collective. How do we fit in with the group? And then red is self-centered. So it's going from individual to collective, individual to collective And It's the hot colors that are individual. And then below red, we've got the purple meme, and that's the family stage. That's the, you help me, I help you. And below purple, we've got beige, which is undifferentiated. So each of these stages has a different way of seeing the world. They have different ways of interacting with each other because of their value spheres. And the drama is when one stage meets another. The drama is when they clash. Because it's a different perspective. It's a different worldview. And it's not that each of the characters in Harry Potter fits neatly into these. And it's really not the case that anyone fits neatly into these. But it can help us to understand the backs and forths. And there's a deeper component to this, which needs to be understood, which is that Spiral Dynamics actually has two tiers. So this green, orange, blue, red, purple, beige... ...is the first tier. That's the first section of the model. And we're doing it backwards. So if you're born, you're born at beige. And you go beige, purple, red, blue, orange, green. And in this first tier, basically, we are sort of put into it by happenstance. It's by chance that we find ourselves in, in them. It's because maybe because of our culture... Maybe because of our family, because of any sorts of reasons we can't know why or how we end up where we are with the worldview that we have. And there are characteristics which are first-tier characteristics. And in a nutshell, they all think that they're right. They all think this is how the world is. They all think if only everyone could believe how I believe, then everything would work out fine. Everything would be great. And this is, well, you can see that it doesn't work. Because you can't square rationality with pluralism. They're always going to be at odds with each other. And you can't square the hierarchy with pluralism. And you can't square the hierarchy with the success meme. And so on in all the different combinations. And that is, actually, until you realize that there is a second tier. That there is another way of seeing this whole thing. And Claire Graves call this calls this leap a momentous a, a momentous What does he say? I've got to get this right. A monumental leap of meaning. That's how Claire Graves says the difference between first tier and second tier. And the quality difference is that when you shift over into second tier, you say, oh, this is just how I think about things. And yet... Everyone else has different ways of seeing things. And this might sound like the green meme. We need to be careful in understanding this. Because Hermione, on the surface, looks like... Well, she's saying, how do the elves feel? She's saying, what about the elves? She's caring about someone else. And in a sense, yes... She is taking a new perspective, and she's understanding a new worldview, but she's not understanding how that fits in with everything else. And that's the difference between a first-tier pluralism and a second-tier pluralism. A second-tier pluralist can see these different categories or these different profiles, and can see, well, of course they're going to interact this way. A second-tier thinker, someone who's evolved themselves to second-tier, is going to sit in the room with the green meme and the orange meme, discussing elf rights, and they're going to be arguing. And the second-tier person is going to be watching them argue, And they're going to see so clearly that, of course you're arguing because you're orange, you're a rationalist. And of course you're arguing because you're a pluralist, you're a green meme. It's very obvious. And by that way, they completely sidestep the argument. And actually, well, they actually make some way into really getting somewhere with the argument. Because the orange and the green, they're just hitting, hitting their heads against the wall or hitting their heads against each other and one of the downsides of the green meme is well nothing ever gets done there's nothing productive because production is seen as bad because that's the success meme and we need to spend all our time giving everyone a fair voice whereas the second tier can say no if you do that if we sit around giving everyone a fair voice not everyone will get a fair voice and Nothing will ever get done. We'll just be sitting around talking about our feelings all day. And activism is very different from second tier as it is from the green meme. So when you see your parades, we want change. We want it now. We want animal rights. We want elf rights. Bring it to us now. What do we want? Elf rights. When do we want it? Now. That's the green meme. And it's very different how the second tier consciousness people go about bringing change so that's a little bit of spiral dynamics It's by no means the end of it it's really just scratching the surface of how deep it goes and if you just keep prodding away, what happens is each of these colours becomes this thing and you say, Oh, this is what red is like. Oh, this is what blue is like. And then you can start to have the same conversation. This, this conversation we're having right now is a second tier conversation because we're comparing all the different colours. And it'll get to a point where we're having a conversation where we can say, this is orange, and it responds to blue like this, and then it will be needing something from green like this. And of course, red says this because green said this. And when orange says this, well, blue says this. And that's, that's the sort of conversation that we'll have. And each time we, I say the color, the, the profile or the, the, the image in your mind will open up. It'll spring to life and you go, ding, 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 ding. Yes, I understand. And a lot of the time I like to talk to spiral... I talk, I talk about spiral dynamics, not stage by stage, but actually by threads. And a thread is, you can say, let's just take one thing and put it through all of the stages. So, for example, Relationships. What is a relationship at red? What is a relationship at blue? What is a relationship at orange? What is a relationship at green? Or emotions. What are emotions like for red? What are emotions like for blue? What are emotions like for orange? What are emotions like for green? Or even something a little more abstract. We can say difficulty. What is difficulty what is difficult? How do we decide what's difficult? How do we experience? How do we link our, ex- our experiences, pardon me, to this word difficulty? Because someone at Blue uses this word difficult. Oh, that's difficult. Which is much the same as, well, it's not much the same. It's totally different to what's difficult for orange. And yet they're still using the same word. So what is difficulty? For red, blue, orange, green, and so on. I believe Harry Potter is not a second tier piece of literature because I don't get the impression that these psychological structures are completely clear to the author. And again, we get to the rabbit hole of speculating what is the author hip to and what what are they trying to say. Now, it's clear that she has something in store for the green meme, which is understanding other perspectives. She has something to say about pluralism. She has something to say about equality. Because she's brought in these house elves, this narrative thread of Hermione being the activist for the house elves. So, keep that in mind. That's going to be something we'll talk more about as this series unfolds. So, continuing on in our plot, we have Harry at school and he's getting some lessons from Mad-Eye Moody. And Mad-Eye brings the students through the unforgivable curses. And as I understand it, there's three of them. One is pain, one is control, and one is death. And, well... That's pretty easy to understand, isn't it? I mean, if you cause pain to someone, that's unforgivable. If you control someone, well, that's unforgivable. And if you you cause the death of something, well, that's unforgivable. I mean, to kill something really is a tragedy because of how much something can be If it's allowed to grow and continue to grow. And each of the students has a different experience of what it's like to be shown these spells. Because Moody is demonstrating them on this jar of spiders. And when he's doing the pain curse... Neville Longbottom, which is one of Harry's friends, has a bit of a moment. And, well, we don't find this out until much later, but Neville's parents were... Well, they were tortured with that very same spell. So when we have pain... As a subject at school, or pain as something that comes up, we have a surrounding experiences that influence how we feel about it. Much in the same way that we have experiences around death. If we start talking about death, we might get a bit sad and say, Oh, my goldfish died when I was a kid. Oh, my poor goldfish. (laughs) <laughs> I'm just teasing of course. I'm just trying to make light of the situation. <laughs> Who knows? I it, it, let's not <laughs> I, I feel like I've talked myself to the edge of a cliff <laughs> with that one. There's no recovering from that one. <laughs> What can I say about control after that? Oh, my poor goldfish died. Yes, death is very important. Don't talk about death. I'm still mourning the loss of my goldfish. Okay. So the other big part of the plot in this book is the Goblet of Fire. And it turns out that this year is a tri-wizard tournament on at the school. So other schools come to visit and they get to have their nominees of people who they can place in the Goblet of Fire. You write your name on a piece of paper, put it in the Goblet of Fire, and the Goblet of Fire does some magic which chooses who gets to compete. And, of course, Harry gets to be chosen because basically the whole series revolves around him. Who would have thought that the book Harry Potter revolves around the story of Harry Potter? But the competition is, well, these chosen few have to compete in these magical sort of tournaments. And you don't find out what it is. And there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of social dynamics of, oh, who's going to get in, who's not going to get in, and who goes for who. And Harry's whole complex of, oh, what everyone thinks about him, flares up because then he's thinking, well, I was too young to put my name in the, in the Goblet of Fire, but I still got called. Surely someone's got it in for me. And then there's an argument between Harry and his friends and saying, why didn't you tell us you put your name in? And Harry says, I couldn't tell you. But then they don't believe him. And then there's this this news article that comes out. That's the character of R- Sika And so now he's got all this press on him. So Harry's world of old oh, school opinion, now it's also public opinion. That he's got to worry about. So his fame has upped him. And his sort of inner confusion and worry about his image has upped the ante. It's become more intense. And Harry gets into this place where he's really alone. And he feels really just, oh, I've got so much schoolwork. No one believes me. His friends aren't supporting him. He feels like someone's out to get him. And it really feels like everything's going wrong for him. And he doesn't know how to face this. Well, he finds out the first task in this tournament is, well, he's got to fight a dragon. And so now he's thinking, oh, great, I've got to fight a dragon. I've got schoolwork. And all this stuff, it's just sort of building up to him. It's building up inside and he gets to this really stressful point. Really stressful point. Really nervous point. And he's very alone. And this builds up all the way to the very moment. The very moment just when he is about to face the dragon. And this is so beautifully written. And this is so well done. Because Harry is in a terrible state. He's facing the dragon. His friends are not supporting him. Everyone's thinking badly of him. And he's got all this pressure on him. And then something magical happens. Something truly magical. And that is that he jumps on his broom and he says this is just like flying it's just like a quidditch match and then all of a sudden his world opens up again his talent his nerve for the thrill and really his his inner hero comes to the front he really becomes the hero In the face of all the things that are working against him, he remembers what it's like to fly. And Quidditch practice, well, that had been cancelled this year because of the tournament, I believe. So he hasn't had much of a chance to do any flying. So he's very much forgotten that this is his passion, this is his love. And when he remembers all that, and he becomes, becomes the hero that he can be, well, then he succeeds. And he overcomes the dragon. He cap- captures the golden egg. And there's sort of this moment with him and his friends, and somehow after that, <laughs> after that moment, everything seems okay. It's just like he doesn't even have to say anything to his friend Ron. They just hug and they say, oh, I'm so sorry. And they're best friends again. And now now all of a sudden everyone in the school is on Harry's side. And it's just a wonderful weight off his his shoulders. And then the funny thing is, well, the minute after he's won, (laughs) Ron says to him, you could win the whole tournament. Donk! <laughs> Isn't that funny? The moment, the very moment you get a little bit of success, the bigger fish comes along. The bigger ambition comes along and says, "No, nope, not so fast. Don't enjoy yourself. You've still got more to do. <laughs> and of course, Ron didn't know. He's just trying to be encouraging. But it says something about success, doesn't it? That the moment you get it, Nope, something more. And what else can we add? Well, more from the plot is... Well, Harry has this... The the ball. And he's trying to work out which girl he's going to ask. And then there's also this other girl that he likes. And who's going to ask Hermione... And there's this moment where Crumb, which is the Quidditch World Cup champion sort of guy, comes up to Harry and says, "Well, are, are you are you uh, you know are you um is is Hermione your boyfriend girlfriend? Are you uh, together? Something like this?" And Harry's like sort of taken aback, like, "Whoa, so confused! Like, why would he even ask that?" And this is the this is the guy that was the you know he's a champion of Quidditch. It's a very different side of him, and of course, he doesn't realize. Well, maybe people don't know if Hermione is your girlfriend or not. They sort of see you together a lot. Maybe they just assume. And then Hermione gets upset that, well, someone else asked her, and she wanted someone else to ask her. And it's all a big, it's all a big thing of just social dynamics of who's going to ask who to the ball. And oh, jeez, I really can't stand it. And then there's also this scene where Harry goes to the bathroom to have a bath and think things over with the golden egg that he'd snatched from the dragon. And apparently this golden egg was meant to give the clue for the next task. And so far, every time Harry opens it, he just has screaming. There's just this screaming, terrible noise, terrible noise. And he can't think, what is this a clue of? What is this a clue to? And he'd been tipped off to say, well, go to the bathroom and think it through. And he works out with the help of one of the ghosts that he should open it underwater. And this is so clever. Because something that means something in one context can mean something totally different in another context. Above water, it makes no sense. In fact, it's a terrible thing. It's of, it's of no use whatsoever. And yet, a, below water... Well, a song comes out, a dreamy melody, poetry. And what does that say about poetry? It does say something about poetry. Because in the right place, in the right time, in the right way, poetry is a beautiful melody, it is a meaningful melody. and he finds out well the next task is something underwater and he also gets tipped off of what he can do to get underwater and there's this whole big thing of going after and his friends has been his friends have been taken and Harry deviates from the from the rules of the game and saves two people instead of saving one but then runs out of time and then there's this showdown and all these sorts of things and Harry also comes to become Acquainted with the pensive, which is this bowl, water-like bowl, which al- which allows you to read memories. But that's a prop that we'll we'll, we'll talk about that again later on. It's really not too much of a problem for what we're talking about now. And the plot continues to unfold and Harry does the second task and the third task and I think we probably should finish up because the next bit we're going to launch into is quite big and we've already spent a lot of time on Spiral Dynamics today and basically that's all I'd like to pull out of the plot maybe, well actually there's one more quick thing I'll mention which is the thing with Mad Eye which is, which is this scene just after Harry comes out of the the bath with the golden egg. And he's got his invisibility cloak on and he trips and he falls into a magic step which holds him there. He's fallen down and made this big racket, and he's out of bed at night time. So Snape and Filch come up and start looking around to see what's happening. And Harry's under his invisibility cloak, but he's dropped all his, all his stuff. And then there's this tense moment where Snape realizes, hey, this is Potter's stuff. There's not so many golden eggs. It must be one of the champions. Ah, and then he remembers, Potter's got an invisibility cloak. So then Snape starts feeling around. He's like clawing in the darkness. Where is he? And then who would it be that turns up but Mad-Eye Moody? And Mad-Eye, you remember he's got his magic eye, his Mad-Eye. He looks around... And Harry realizes he can see through the Invisibility Cloak, which means Mad-Eye can actually see what's going on. And strangely, luckily, Mad-Eye is able to talk to Filch and Snape in such a way as to sort of let them to leave alone the scene without arousing suspicion. And they head off. And it's a very tense scene. It's a very clever scene in the book. And once they're gone, Mad-Eye, well, he sort of helps Harry a little bit and Harry dusts himself off and picks picks up his things. And one of the things is the Miranda's map. And Mad-Eye takes it has a very close look at it. Now remember, this map is the thing that tells you who is where, and it's very lucky that Harry had wiped it clean before Snape. That's another part. Of, that's another tension in this scene: is what happens if Snape gets this map and then sees that Harry Potter is right there. So it's a, it's very clever how all the things are put together in this into this one moment. But then. Mad-Eye, he actually says, can I have this map? I need this map. And Harry, well, after being saved like that, he has to say yes. But the other side of the plot is that, well, Mad-Eye is not actually Mad-Eye. He's an imposter. And Mad-Eye is drinking this magic potion that just makes him look like the real Mad-Eye. And Harry had seen this on the Mirandas map and just thought... Oh, this must be a mistake. So Harry hasn't quite worked out at this stage that Moody is an imposter. And we haven't found out in this part of the plot. But with that piece of information, then this scene is even more tense. There's even so much more to it. So that's another moment that I really like and... It it says a lot, like, who can really see what's going on? Because in that scene, Harry could see something in Moody, which Moody didn't want to have seen. Just in the same way that Harry was seen by Moody in a way that he didn't want Snape to see him. So who sees who in each situation is a tricky little thing. And we don't really know entirely what Mad Eye's eye can see or can't see. And there's this there's this sort of cutaway comment earlier on about oh can can he see through underwear? Like can he see us naked? Is that what he's doing? And there's this sort of thing with the girls where they're like oh he's so creepy oh I don't like it when he looks at me with that eye oh you know there's something a bit there's something a bit creepy like a bit uh a bit perverted about him like he's a bit of a strange character. I mean in the in the movie he's portrayed as a like a real grumpy sort of pirate and he is very creepy. And we find out well the imposter that has taken his body is very creepy. So maybe that's why it's done like that, but in we could say like the real Mad-Eye and the imposter Mad-Eye. It's hard to differentiate those characters, but I feel that I actually liked Moody as the real Moody. Like when he was acting like the real Moody, then in the book, then we think that this is a really cool guy. This is a really cool, you know, he's sort of got superpowers. He's got edge to him. He's a bit of a, bit of a dark hero, you know, like a Hellinger sort of, Van, Van Helsing, is that someone, is that who I'm thinking of? Dracula, someone like that, I don't know. But that yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. So I'm glad we could talk about that scene. And it's important that we find out later on that it was Moody that was making Harry go into the Triwizard Tournament and helping him through. And that is because... Well, at the end of the tournament, where there's the final moment of collecting the cup, well, that transports Harry. And you know where it transports him. And we're going to talk about that next episode. (laughs) Sorry to leave you with the cliffhanger, but there's so much in that that we're going to make this something to talk about next time. So... Thanks very much for listening, and this really has been so much fun, and there's very much more to come very soon. So, before you race off and do whatever it is you plan to do, really, really, whatever, anything, anything that you are planning to do after listening to this, just wait. Just wait. Pause. I'm not asking much. I'm telling you, anything can just wait a few minutes before you do it. Believe me, you need to just pause after all that we've talked about today. So stop what you're doing and just sit quietly for a few minutes before you go on with whatever you're doing. And that's all I have to say. For now.